0: Alright, under the radar, a study of the Bible's unsung heroes. Last week we continued our study of the figures throughout the Old and New Testaments who have gone undetected by the 21st century radar, perhaps. We have not talked about them as much as we usually do as other characters and figures throughout the Scriptures. We're talking about the men and the women who do not necessarily get the attention of the bigger names that surround them within their text and their stories, but even though they do not garner the major focus of their stories, without them, we may not have the major characters that are in their stories. Or at least, it would not have played out the way we read in Scripture. And that's why, as we've been engaging in this study It's been amazing, to me at least, to see all the men and women who made such an impact from behind the scenes. To see all of these undetected giants of the faith. And seeing these unsung heroes has allowed me, hopefully has allowed all of us, to see what we can do for the kingdom as well. Because as we've talked about throughout our study, God has given each of us a role to play, a function to do, and a purpose to fulfill within His church. We simply have to find what that role, what that function, and what that purpose is. And so we may not be able to be Queen Esther, but every single one of us can have the persistently humble faith that Mordecai had. We may not be able to be the Apostle Paul. We may not be able to be one of the pillars of the book of Acts. And certainly none of us can be Jesus. But every single one of us can preserve the pattern and truth of God's Word just as Luke did every single day of our life. And it is true that we may not be able to be Moses or one of Israel's leaders or from the bloodline of Jesus, the Messiah. But every single one of us can be Shifra, Pua, and Jehoshaphat, who feared God regardless of what that would mean to their lives. It's also true that we may not be able to be like Peter. But every single one of us can be like Andrew who brought Peter to Jesus, who brought the little child to Jesus, who brought the group of Greeks to Jesus. And it is true that we can go and bring others to the Lord just like Andrew did. It is true that, again, we may not be able to be like Moses or, or even Joshua who led Israel as the main leaders, but every single one of us can be like Caleb, who wholly followed God and was all in, even when no one else was all in around him. And we may not be able to be like Peter and the rest of the apostles and maybe what we might have always seen as the pillars of the church, but every single one of us can be like Dorcas who had that servant heart. And her servant heart was powerful enough to convince God to raise her from the dead. We can be like Dorcas. And we may not be able to be like David, but every single one of us can be like Jonathan. Jonathan. The man who denied himself every single step of the way throughout his story. And in doing so, left a legacy for us to learn, even today. And we might not be able to be like the twelve apostles, the the twelve chosen by Jesus. But every single one of us can be like Stephen, who was called to be one of the seven. Stephen, who was the leader, the worker, the preacher, the martyr, the igniter, who inspired the church as they were scattered throughout all the nation to continue to preach and teach Jesus as the Christ. And lastly, we may not be able to be like Moses, but every single one of us can be like Jethro because Jethro had wisdom. Jethro had the wisdom to take in this strange Egyptian. He had the wisdom to give this man a job. He had the wisdom to give him one of his own daughters. He had the wisdom to let him return to Egypt when it was time. He had the wisdom to return Moses' family to him at Sinai. He had the wisdom to see that Yahweh was the one true living God. And he had the wisdom to know what Moses should do to effectively hear all of the people's disputes. Jethro had wisdom, and so can we tonight. And that leads us to our study tonight. As we go back to the Old Testament to see yet another unsung hero who defies all logic of what perhaps we would have done if we were in their situation. A hero who perhaps would have done the very last thing that I would have done, or maybe you would have done. Our hero tonight did the opposite of what I think would be logical in her situation. Tonight we study about a woman who has no name. We study about a woman who lost everything. She lost her family. She lost her home. She was simply a slave in a foreign land. Tonight we study about what some translations call a little girl. Tonight we study about someone who kept her trust and her faith in God even though the events that unfolded around her would make any of us question why this was happening to me. Tonight, we study about the maid of Naaman's wife. And that's the only name we can give her. The maid of Naaman's wife. You will turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Kings chapter 5. This is where this story unfolds. Many of us know the story of Naaman, but may have not looked at it from the lens of the maid of Naaman's wife in 2 Kings chapter 5. But before we begin to read, before you hopefully go ahead and uh, spoiler alert up into the text and find out what happens, let's stop right there and try to give a little bit of context of what is happening around our text tonight. What is the context of 1st and 2nd Kings? You know, I don't know about you, but I struggle to understand the chronology, the timeline of events that occur in 1st and 2nd Kings. Why is that? Well, because it's also tied in connection with First and Second Chronicles. It's also tied in connection with some of the books of the prophets, and there's some things happening over here, and then some things happening over there, and they overlap, and they intertwine, and sometimes I'm thinking, what is going on? Right? I don't know if you felt that way, but it definitely comes out that way when we read the text, because it's not a chronological list of books. There are many books that are not in chronological order, and so when we read them, we just assume, why? Because of all the other books we've read in our life, that this is, chrono- like, this is the actual timeline of events from left to right. But as we read the Bible, we know that there are some events that happen here, and then there are some events that happen there, and it's completely confusing sometimes for us to understand, and sometimes it can be incredibly hard. For us to understand. Because we ask the question, you know, who is king right now? When we read First and Second Kings, who, who, who is God's prophet at this point? And, 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 and when does that stop? And are we talking about the northern kingdom of Israel here? Or are we talking about the southern kingdom of Judah here? And so many times it leaves the reader, it leaves us scratching our heads. Thinking what in the world is going on? And I want to hopefully provide all of us some clarity as we look at the book of 2 Kings tonight, but for us to understand 1 and 2 Kings before we get into our text tonight. And basically what you need to know about the books of 1 and 2 Kings is that really it's supposed to be one book. It's supposed to be one book written by one person who gives the chronological timeline of events that, occur after the life of David. Basically, these books tell the story of what happened to God's people, what happened to the nation of Israel after the reign of their greatest king, David. And so when you look at 1 Kings, we're going to see that it starts talking about the reign of Solomon in the first 11 chapters, about him Asking for wisdom, right? We know that story very well. It's going to talk about him building the temple of God. It's going to talk about his eventual downfall as he started to marry all of the other women from all the other nations around him and in so doing bringing in all this other culture and all these other gods and all these other influences into the nation of God's people. And so that's what's happening in the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings. And then we're going to see ultimately that the kingdom gets divided. In chapters 12 through 16, we're going to see that the kingdom is split up in half because of Solomon's sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, in the next few chapters. And so we see that this kingdom that God has, you know, preserved over many generations, has now been split in half. And you have this southern kingdom that's called Judah, and the capital of Judah is Jerusalem, and they are led by Rehoboam. Side note, if you're wondering how many kings each of the different nations had, the southern kingdom had about 20 kings, the northern kingdom had about 20 kings. And when we look at the southern kingdom, well, you can write down, you can think about this this way. They had about eight out of their 20 kings that were good. About eight of their 20 kings followed God, followed His commands, tried to do what was right. And remember, that is in the southern kingdom of Judah. And then when you look at the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital of it was Samaria. And they were led by Jeroboam, who set the tone, set the standard throughout many generations that all of the kings of the northern kingdom would then follow. Of none of them, zero of their twenty were good. None of them followed God. Some did at some points in their, in their reign, and then at some points totally left God's command. And so that's what we're seeing here. The kingdom of God is divided into two halves. And one half's a little bit better than the other. But at the end of the day, neither of them are really God's people anymore. And so since the northern kingdom is completely devoid of any godly leadership in the kingship, God had to turn to prophets who would then speak on his behalf and that's what we read about in 1st and 2nd Kings we read about these great men who did these great things and we read about Elijah and Elisha we read about Elijah who did all those wonderful things that we've studied so many times and when we think about Elijah we probably think about him being the more influential prophet we can probably more frequently recall lessons and different things about how amazing Elijah was, right? Elijah was the one who went on Mount Carmel and did all of that great stuff in 1 Kings 18. And we think about Elijah being the one who was at the Mount of Transfiguration. And Elijah was a great man. But I think we forget about Elisha a little bit. Because when you think about what we read about the life of Elijah, we read about seven miraculous things he did. Elijah did about seven miraculous things, seven supernatural things through the power of God. And when we look at Elisha's life, we find that he did about 14 miraculous things. Elisha did about 14 supernatural things through the power of God and Perhaps this is because of what Elisha asked for in 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 9. If you just flip over a couple pages, you can read that Elisha asked Elijah for double the spirit that he had. Elisha asked for one thing. He said, I want double the spirit of what you have, of what you're able to do. And so Elijah said, that's a hard thing, but you can have it. And so when we look at the amount of miraculous things that Elijah did, he did about seven. You look at the amount of miraculous things that Elisha did, he did about 14. And what is that? That is double. And even I can do that math, right? As we think about these two great men. And so as we see the prophets take over for the kings as far as the people who God talked to, the people who God spoke through, we're going to see that it's going to almost be a prophets versus the kings situation all the way from 1 Kings chapter 17 all the way to our book tonight, 2 Kings chapter 8. And what's going to happen during this time is the kingdom of God, both of these kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, is going to slowly but surely fall away from God. Because their kings would make alliances with all of the surrounding nations. And when they would do that, that would automatically bring in the adoption of other gods, of other cultures, of other social and religious influences. And this, as we said, is recorded through all of these books listed on the PowerPoint. And if we were to continue to go past there, we're going to see in the next few chapters, chapters 9 through 17, it's leading toward the road to exile. And here is where the northern kingdom of Israel and the capital of the Samaritans, the capital of Samaria, excuse me, was taken over by the Assyrians in 722 BC during the reign of Hosea. And then if you continue on to that, the end of our book, 2nd Kings, chapter 18 through 19, uh, 18 through 25 actually, is going to record how the demise of the southern kingdom of Judah and the capital of Jerusalem getting taken by the Babylonians. And that takes place during Jehoiakim's reign in 586 B.C. And so this is the outline as we look at the books of 1 and 2 Kings, of what is taking place in the context of our story tonight in 2 Kings chapter 5. This is during the slow degradation of God's people tonight. We are in the northern kingdom of Israel, the one with no godly kings. We are during the reign of Joram, the king over Israel. And because he has no semblance of a righteous bone in his body, Elisha has to fill that void. The mighty miracle worker who performed double the amount that Elijah performed. And he's going to be crucial for our study tonight. And with that, we're ready to get into our tech tonight as we study one of the Bible's greatest unsung heroes, the Maid of Naaman's wife. The first few verses we're going to read and then talk about, but then we'll get into the text a little bit quicker. So verse 1, chapter 5, 2 Kings. It says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor. But a leper. And we'll stop right there. So here we're going to see, we're going to read about this guy named Naaman. He is a commander of the army of the king of Syria. The king of Syria at this time happens to be this man by the name of Ben-Hadad. And the text says that he, is, he was great. He was honorable in the sight of his king. That he was The man that by which the Lord had given victories over Israel and the surrounding countries that the Lord was actually with this man Naaman. Why? Because the Lord had to leave His own nation of Israel because they weren't following Him anymore. And He had to fulfill the prophecy about the exile coming. But anyway, we get back to see that He is a mighty man of valor. That He did great and wondrous things as a warrior. But then what does the text end by saying about Naaman? But he was a leper. And if you've read the Bible for any amount of time, it's likely that you already know what this means when you think about leprosy. Leprosy was an incurable disease at the time now. I believe we take a shot and it'll be alright. Don't touch an armadillo though, because that could not give you leprosy. But you'll take a shot, it's okay. But back in that day, it was not curable. It was a slow, it was a painful death. We see them as the outcast of society. They were forced to live in colonies all by themselves without any outside contact. And when we think about leprosy, we think about the slowly losing the limbs and the fingers and the, 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 the hands, and then slowly but surely over time, all of your appendages would fall off and you would become nothing. I, I'm not trying to make this gross. I'm just trying to tell you exactly what leprosy was. And here in, cha- in chapter 5, verse 1, this is where we see Naaman... In this verse, he is a mighty man of valor. He is an honorable and great man, a warrior, a commander of the army. However, he was a leper. And it didn't matter how great you were, if you got leprosy, it was a death sentence. In this culture and on into the New Testament actually. But the text continues in verse 2, And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Let's stop right there. So The text says that the Syrians would go out on these raids. They would go out in these bands of militias or armies and they would attack these little towns surrounding the northern kingdom of Israel's capital, which was Samaria. And they would go out in these raids, and after one of these raids, it says that they brought back this captive. Tonight we're not going to sugarcoat what this means. By the word captive we're talking about, they had made her become a slave. They had brought back this captive from Israel, this little girl, as some translation says, as a slave. She was not a grown woman. She was a little girl. She was a young woman from Israel. And now she was forced to become the maid of Naaman's wife. We don't get her name. We don't get any information other than that. She simply was a little young girl from Israel. And day after day, she had to watch Naaman's leprosy grow more and more intense. And before we move on in the text, I want us to understand and realize the position that this young girl had been put in. This young girl, the maid of Naaman's wife, was forced to serve the man responsible for taking her captive. She was forced to serve the man who literally ripped her from her home and forced her into slavery. To them, to Syria, to Naaman, to their people, she was nothing but a piece of property that they owned. To them, the maid of Naaman's wife was simply just the spoils of war. And we never hear about or read about her family I wonder why that is. Perhaps it is because Naaman and his men executed them. And she no longer had a family to talk about. And so here we have this little girl, this young woman from Israel who has been stripped from her home, stripped from her family. She is in a foreign land and is a slave to people who do not serve God. They serve idols. And what is about to happen next? is what makes her such an amazing unsung hero. Verse 3. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And so instead of watching her master slowly but surely wither away, slowly degrade into nothingness from his leprosy, She genuinely tries to help the man who had stolen her away from her family. The man who had potentially killed that family. The man who had forced her to become his slave. By saying, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. That's the New King James Version. I want us to understand tonight that this is not a sarcastic remark. It's not like the maid of Naaman's wife is saying, well, if only he was with the prophet who's in Samaria. (laughs) Ha, 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 but you're not. It's not like she's giving some sarcastic remark, some facetious remark. This isn't her being sassy. This, for some reason, is a genuine desire that she has for this man. How do I know that? You look at the other translations. The English Standard Version says, Would that my Lord... And the text continues. The New American Standard Update says, I wish that my Master... And the text continues. So here this little girl, this captive from the nation of Israel, this person who has absolutely no reason to care about Naaman, her slave master. She's not only feeling bad about his leprosy, she's going a step above that and is offering a solution. And by the way, it's not a possible solution. It's an absolute solution. If you go to the prophet in Samaria, he will heal you. That is what she says. And why does she do this? Why does she do this? Why does she even have her hope in God anymore? This is where many of us would say, God's not with me anymore. He's not even in Israel anymore. He's letting all these other nations pick on us and we're slowly falling away from Him and He don't even care about it. He has allowed me to become this man's slave. He has allowed my whole life to be stripped away from me. In our day, it might be amazing, a surprise if she didn't say, I don't know how to fix your leprosy, Naaman, but I'll tell you one thing, don't go to God about this because I put my trust in Him and look where it got me. That might be what we might expect someone to say who has totally been stripped away from her family even though she and her family were faithful. She has been stripped away and given to this man as a slave. But instead of seeing her say something like that, we see her say, I wish... Would that, if only my master could see the prophet of Samaria, it would be fixed. But what we learn about this little maid is that she believed in Elisha, not the evil king Joram, that she was from a household of faith that put their trust in God, put their faith in God, and because of that, she is forever about to change this man's life. It's amazing that as we look at this, she shows no resentment for her slave master. She shows no homesickness. She only shows faith. Faith in God amidst extreme adversity. And the text continues in verse 4. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. And then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. So evidently, this simple maid, this little girl from Israel, was so impassioned in her desire to see Naaman get well that Naaman decides within himself, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go see this prophet in Samaria. I'm going to go try to see what this is all about. And he goes so far as to take this petition to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. And then Ben-Hadad gives Naaman enough money to pay for this service and enough money to make the journey, enough clothes to make the journey. And he even sent a letter to the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, King Joram. But what Ben-Hadad doesn't realize is that the king of the northern kingdom of Israel is no longer the real leader. King Joram is no longer who God is with. He was not the leader who would be capable of healing Naaman's leprosy. Notice the girl does not say, send him to the king who reigns in Samaria. She says, send him to the prophet who is in Samaria. Let's see what happens in the next few verses. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and he said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent the king saying Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And then Naaman went with his horses and chariot and he stood at the door of the house and Elisha sent a messenger to him saying Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. And so as we look back at verse 7, we're going to see that Joram, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, had no idea what this could possibly mean. This just shows you how much of a death sentence leprosy was. He says, am I God that can make this man live or die? Why is Ben-Hadad asking me to heal this man? I can't heal anything. I can't do anything like this at all. How could this possibly be my responsibility? Who does he think I am? And when Elisha hears of this, of him tearing his clothes, of him having no faith in God or having no idea of what to do, Evidently, he says, I know exactly what to do. He tells Joram, I got this. Send the man to me. And so Naaman goes to his house, and Elisha doesn't even give this guy the time of day to come outside. He sends a servant out there, a messenger, telling him to go bathe in the river Jordan seven times. And that his leprosy would be, would, would, would be cleansed. That he would be restored to his normal self. Let's continue to read in verse 11. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the far-far? And the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel, could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And Let's stop right there. So notice again, we just said, Elisha doesn't give this guy the time of day to come out and to meet him. Why is that? Probably because he knew who Naaman was. All that Naaman had done. All the pain that he had caused. Well, if that's the case, why does he give him the solution to heal, to heal the leprosy? Well, he says it so that the world could see that there is a prophet in Israel. Perhaps he even knew about the little girl who has sent him to him, who said, if you go see this prophet in Samaria, he will heal you. And so that's exactly what Elisha does. So he tells them, hey, go dip in the Jordan seven times. Naaman's furious about this. Why? Well, what's wrong with our water? Is it not any different than the water you got here? In fact, it's, this is little shabby water compared to what we got over where I live. We're just going to dip over here, and I'll be fine there. Why do I have to dip in this river? I'll go home and get the same thing done here. But something amazing happens to stop him from doing that. Some of his servants challenge him. They say, what? Why do you have to be so stubborn in the state that you are in? You have been given a death sentence. Why would you go home now? What harm is it to you just to dip in this river seven times? If it works, great. If it doesn't work, what do you have to lose? Why would you not just go ahead and try to see what this is about? Could it be that these servants believed in the little girl? the maid of Naaman's wife, in her evident faith that Elisha could heal this man of his leprosy. And so Naaman, he heeded the voices of these servants, and he was dipped seven times in the Jordan. And upon coming up the seventh time, his skin was healed. It was soft as a baby's head. It was soft like a baby, like a little child, like he was brand new again. He was cleansed from his leprosy. Good as new. And the text continues in verse 15. And he returned to the man of God, and, he, and all his aides came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, no. now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant, when my master goes into the temple of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on in my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Ramon. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. I want us to look at this amazing testimony that Naaman has just given here in this text. In verse 15 he says, There is no God in all the earth, except in Israel. This commander, this mighty man of valor, this great man in the nation of Syria, this pagan nation has just said, there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Verse 17, he says, Your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifices to other gods, but to the Lord. You see, it's because of this supernatural, the miraculous, the awesome nature of this undeniable miracle that Naaman, this pagan Syrian, who in his past lifetime had worshipped all these other gods, who in his past lifetime had attacked the people of God, was immediately humbled to the realization that there is only one God, and His name is Yahweh. And all of this, all of this would not have happened if a little girl from Israel who had nothing left in her life but her faith, if she didn't speak up. I want you to think about all the people that are involved in this story. All of the people that are impacted by this one little slave girl from Israel. You have Naaman, obviously. You have Naaman's wife. You have the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad. You have the king of Israel, Joram. You have Elisha, the prophet of God, the man of God. You have all of Naaman's servants. And you ultimately have Elisha's servant, Gehazi, who is going to, within the next few verses, seven or eight verses, he's going to receive the leprosy of Naaman because he's going to go catch Naaman and say you owe me some money for what you did when Elisha clearly said you owe nothing but think about all the people that that are affected by this one little girl and all of the people within this story are affected by her And the simple thing that she did as the maid of Naaman's wife. And as we look to ourselves tonight, how is it that the maid of Naaman's wife can impact us? It's hard to even say her title. the maid of Naaman's wife. How can she impact our lives thousands upon thousands of years later? I mean, when you think about it, this little girl was not attached to one of the absolute heroes of the Bible. This little girl, she's not linked to David the same way Jonathan was. She's not linked to Peter the same way Andrew was. She's not linked to Moses the same way Jethro was. In what way did she change the course of Scripture? And it is true that she is not linked besides some of the characters we've already discussed, some of the giant heroes that we have already talked about. But that might, make her, that might be what makes her the perfect unsung hero for our study tonight. That might be what makes her so amazing for our story, our study this quarter. You see, Jonathan, Luke, Stephen, Caleb, Mordecai, Jethro, almost all of these characters were the beneficiaries of tremendous influences around them. They got to watch incredible heroes of God. They got to feed off of their faith as an example They were able to watch Moses. They were able to watch David. They were able to watch Peter and Paul and all the other pillars of the church. But the maid of Naaman's wife, what did she have? What did the maid of Naaman's wife have? She was born in a time where there were no tremendous examples around her. She was born in a time where there was really no nation of God anymore. All there were were remnants of what used to be God's people. They still wore the name of Israel as a kingdom, but they were far from the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were far from following the law of Moses and they had slowly but surely taken on the personalities and the faiths of these surrounding nations. She didn't even have her own family to live upon, to lean on, because they had been stripped from her. All she had, all she could lean on, was the hope of this prophet that she had heard about from Samaria this man who had performed many wondrous miracles. And she put her entire faith in God to provide through that man through Elisha. And it is true that it's probable that none of us here tonight or listening online can be like Elisha. The man of God is what the text constantly calls him. The man who had twice the spirit of Elijah. The man who stood alone against the enemy's nations and against his own nation to many degrees. But it is also true tonight that every single one of us can be like the maid of Naaman's wife. Because all she did when you examine her life All she did when you really come down to it is she kept the faith. She kept the faith when she was stripped of her family, stripped of her homeland and forced to be a slave. She kept the faith when it seemed like God had abandoned her. She kept the faith when Naaman needed a miracle. And because she kept the faith, Naaman was cleansed from his leprosy. Naaman's wife was able to have her husband back. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, heard about the power of Yahweh. Elisha was able to confirm the power of God that still remains. And Naaman's servants believed in the process, ridiculous though it may be, of dipping seven times in the Jordan. All of this. All of this for the very man responsible for taking her life away from her. All of this for the man who owned her. All of this for the man who separated her from her family and from her home. What a tremendous unsung hero we read about with the maid of Naaman's wife. But tonight, the question has to be, have we kept the faith? Tonight, as you look at yourself and you think about your soul and you think about all the things that are going on in your life, have you kept the faith? The faith. If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to see a challenge. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, it says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give unto me in that day and will not only give unto me only, but to all those who have loved His appearing. Have you kept the faith? Because as Paul said, because he kept the faith, because he finished the race, because he did all of the things that he did, he was ready to be poured out as a drink offering. The time of his departure was at hand. But because he kept the faith, there was laid up for him a crown of righteousness which the Lord would give unto him in that day. No one could take that crown away. When you think of the maid of Naaman's wife, her life could be taken away, her family could be taken away, her homeland could be taken away, but no one could take away her faith because she kept it most close to her heart. When everything else was taken away, without her having an option, no one could take away her faith, regardless of what they did or how they did it. She kept the faith. And tonight, as we think about ourselves, if we are ever going to be the body of Christ, that God intended for us to be, then we're going to have to have members who keep the faith. We're going to have to have members who keep the faith even when the others around them have lost theirs. Even when, just like the northern kingdom of Israel, slowly but surely over time, the influences of the world and surrounding people around them influenced their decision-making, influenced how they followed God and slowly but surely led them to exile. We have people around us today, every day of our life within the church, who are slowly but surely getting pulled away to the world. And we have to keep the faith. We have to keep the faith even when others around us have lost theirs. We have to have members who keep the faith even when a pandemic threatens our physical life, our physical safety. We have to keep the faith. We have to keep the faith even when the pews aren't as filled as they used to be. We have to keep the faith even when we've lost our job. Even when we've lost loved ones. Even when we lose our way of life. We have to keep the faith regardless of whether it makes sense for us to or not. The same way the maid of Naaman's wife did. And if I could borrow the words of the maid of Naaman's wife who had one sentence in all the Bible, if only, would that I wish that every single one of us kept the faith just like this tremendous unsung hero thank you for your attention tonight next week we're going to be concluding our series of under the radar a study of the bible's unsung heroes I appreciate all of your attention tonight we're going to be closed out in a word of prayer by our brother Mark Duncan